Man, we can't do this without great people. And and how you define great people is hungry, humble, and willing to sacrifice for others. Every single individual has a story to tell. And they're great stories that need to be heard. I want every listener to know they have the ability to change the world. Welcome to the 1720 Podcast. What's up, Mountain Movers? Thank you for tuning in to 1720. Really excited for today's episode. Uh, Dave Burroughs is joining us. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks for having me. Man, really excited. We had a few hits and misses on trying to get this scheduled, but based on your values, what you believe in, the culture that you're setting up, I've been extremely excited to get you on the show just to be a fan of what you're doing and share with our listeners some of those things. But just to back up from that, let's just go the standard elevator pitch. Who is Dave Burroughs if you're going up an elevator with a stranger? Man, I'm just a guy from Alabama trying to make a living in, in Dallas. I don't know how to put it, yeah. I was going to hop in earlier. I was just letting that roll. But I think we got – didn't you end up with COVID? Isn't that how we end up I did. jumbled I actually, up, not getting it on when we wanted to? I did. I We were supposed to this a few weeks ago. I got COVID, which is funny I thought you couldn't get it twice, and you can. Oh, that's, no. That's a complete lie. Yeah. I, um, I, yeah, because I, I woke up one morning. Cause I had it last March back when it kind of was blowing up all over the country. When it was new? Yeah, when it was new. When it was cool to <laughs> when get it. was it. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you got hipster COVID. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I woke up. It was, a, it was a Friday before we were supposed to meet, and I was getting ready for work, and I put on cologne. And it hit me. I was like, I can't, I can't smell. Uh-oh. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. So I kind of I went into the kitchen. I grabbed an orange. I I pulled it open. I smelled it, and I was like, "Man, I can't, I can't smell that orange." So I took a, ta- a bite of it. I'm like, well, I can taste it, so it's not COVID. I, I have my taste buds, so I go to the doctor to be safe. And sure enough, right? Yep, you have COVID. But the cool thing is, I guess the second time you get it, it's extremely mild. Like, I, that was the only symptom I got. Well, and that's the or, um, again immediately in the ditch. But isn't that the that's like, this is every episode? I'm like, we get started, we have a list, and I'm like, I have a list. <laughs> you know, like let's talk about that. but um, isn't that the the whole bit on the vaccines? Is like you may get it, but you're not going to be hospitalized or die from it. So I mean, this I is... assume so. Yeah, that's I getting it last March. It was pretty rough. Is a I was pr- probably five or six days felt horrible. Uh, but this past one was like, man, I just lost my smell. I just kind of had it hanging around the house for two weeks. That's crazy. I probably told this story before, but we had gone to New York the week before. Um, and kind of, you know, there was rumblings that something was going on and, and two weeks before it would have been like mid, mid February, we were in New York city and, uh, came home and then all of a sudden all heck broke loose. And, uh, we remembered like with the benefit of hindsight, like there were COVID cases in New York city while we were there yeah. and we didn't know it, but we very could very well could have caught it there. And, um, but we've been fortunate, man. So, yeah, so, so far so good. All right, you, you undersold yourself uh, when you tried to elevator pitch it. Tell us what you're up to these days. Obviously, working at the demo company. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll kind of work through your career. So. Okay. Yeah. So uh, about five years ago, started the demo company. It's been a, been a wild ride. You know, obviously do commercial demolition. Um, then about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, uh, started the door company. Does commercial door frames and hardware. And if I ever did another company, I'm not naming it the something company. I no, it's I, the. I, I mean, I thought it was kind of charming at first. Hey, kind of get this little names. We'll do the door company, the demo company. Man, I hate it because now every negative thing they associate the other company with. And there's, I'm the only person involved with both. No other employees work in both companies. And so, yeah, our demo guys show up and get yelled at, Hey, where's the door frames? Like, I don't. No, I don't know. I'm a, I work at the door company. I don't know what you're talking about. Or the door guys show up and they're pissed off. At the, hey, demo guys didn't remove this flooring over here. You need to go over there and get it done. They're like, we don't. We do doors, man. Interesting. <laughs> so That's you, funny. Yeah. So you there is some positive association. Oh man, I love those guys. You guys got to be great. And then there's but all the negative is like, hey, we're not giving you this job because I hate the demo company. So doors, you're not getting. Like, um, we're, we have nothing to do with. It. Or or the other one, the great one. Hey. I gave demo the job, so can you cut your door number, get like a package deal? Like, and they're like, I have nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Our similarity is the and company. Yeah, exactly. Middle is completely different. So if, if I do another one, it's definitely going to have some random name that no one knows. So. Just letters and numbers. That'll get you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. So you, obviously you didn't start there. Walk us back. Tell us how you hopped into construction. I mean, we, before we hopped on, we were talking about uh, growing up Alabama, going mm-hmm. to Auburn, all stuff. That was a cool story. So let's circle back there. Let's talk about how you got here. Yep. So, um, so you know, growing up in Alabama, you know, I grew up in construction. My dad had a construction company. I kind of grew up, honestly, it paid 10 bucks an hour to sweep the floors. That's good money when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. So I always mm-hmm. worked it, but I always thought I would work my way out of it. You know, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. And then 
Uh, I, I told your story. I was working for a small construction company in Alabama, which if if you think about it, like I thought they were massive. They did maybe four million a year, general contractor, you know, just like, but um, but yeah, the, the owner of that company, I was like, man, what did you go to school for? And he was like, oh, I, I went to did building science at at Auburn. I'm like, building science. I was like, and that's they teach you how to build buildings. Yeah, he goes. Man, I'm going to do that. This guy drives a jacked up F-250. I'm in on yeah, that. You're telling me if I go get this degree that one day I can get a jacked up F-250. It's like, yes, I'm down. <laughs> so I, I get to Auburn. Um, I get in the building science degree. Of course, that's more geared towards commercial construction. In my mind, I thought I was going to move back to Birmingham and move home, build homes for a living. So it's, it's geared more towards commercial. And then we we're talking about like this eye-opening revelation. Like when all these companies from around the country were recruiting Auburn students to move to Phoenix, move to California, move to Nashville, move to DC to build buildings. I was like, well, I guess they do build buildings in other parts of the country. And, they, <laughs> and once that light bulb went off, I wanted to move anywhere but Birmingham or Atlanta. I was like, I'll take a job anywhere. So get out of school. I got a job with a company called B and K building group, which um, some of you might be familiar with them. Uh, and it kind of goes, it's really Lines perfectly why I took this job. All the executive membership at Bovis Lindley's, when Lindley's bought Bovis, yeah. they had this idea to leave and, and do their own commercial firm. And they joined uh, B&K, which the B&K was more of a, you know, industrial plant type builder, not really commercial. So they went kind of started the commercial wing. And so me coming out of school, you know, they offered me an opportunity and it was, and I saw like, man, this is really cool. Ground floor. And I was one of the first handful of employees to get started on there. Now, don't get me wrong. I was bottom of the totem pole. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm getting copies and, you know, bringing people water, but, <laughs> but still, I, I was excited about the idea of getting on this company that was starting and just to be part of that startup. So, cause I've always been real intrigued by that. So they were based out of Nashville and they were like, Dave, come work with us. You can move. We want you to move all over the country. I'm like, hell yeah. I was like, I, so I don't have to live in Birmingham. Like, no, we want you actually, Dave, we want you to move like every 12 to 18 months. We're going to consistently move you because you got to go where they're building the hospitals. Right. Well, I got extremely lucky. I landed cities like um, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, Asheville, North Carolina, back to Austin, Texas. I, I kept landing like really good duty. Yeah, and, for hospitals, you don't know where you're going to land nationwide, yeah. and those are awesome cities. And, and then one of my buddies has got like Ponca City, Oklahoma, like <laughs> yeah. Truth and Consequence, New Mexico, like and like Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Every time we looked, like I was every time my job came up. Oh man, Dave, you mind moving to Nashville? Sure, I like Nashville. <laughs> oh, Dave, man, our next job's in Asheville, North Carolina. Cool. I've never been to Asheville. I'll move there. So I just I got this real lucky. They just run of work. And so I was happy. I was moving around young, single, building hospitals, you know, living in cool cities. And I kept getting moved to Texas, you know, and this is, you know, pre 08 and po- little post 08. You know, if you remember, like, you know, when 08 happened, like my friends who went to Florida to build condos, they are no longer in construction. Oh, they, I they, bet. they left because construction stopped, but Texas just kind of kept rolling. You know, it was slower, but man, there was still work. And so I kept getting moved here. And, and the, you know, the, Next time I moved here after that was um, DPR actually reached out to me. It, actually, let me be honest. I'm the only person at DPR that's ever been hired on Submit Your Resume Online. I promise you. Really? I promise you. <laughs> what was your secret sauce on that to get hired? Uh, uh, timing. So I was at KB, I was at uh, uh, B&K, and KBR bought B&K. And so if y'all know KBR, yeah. massive company. Overnight, B&K, you know, we grew up from – you know, nothing to a billion dollar year company, but then like overnight it became part of this fifteen billion dollar year company, and you became, you know, I was no longer Dave Burrows, I was KBB O four two zero or whatever. I was a yeah, number, right. literally, a, I mean, physical number. Hey, when you call into IT, this is who they know you as. So, right. Um, and so I, I knew that wasn't the kind of the culture of company I want to be part of. And I was real intrigued. DPR offered me a job out of college. I was really intrigued by them, but I took this. I turned them down to take an opportunity to go do the startup deal or say startup, but to go be part of this company that was kind of coming out of the ground. And so I was one night just kind of like, man, I'm just, I'm just going to see if DPR has any opportunities. So I submit my resume online. And obviously I had a couple hospitals on my resume that were in Austin, Texas. And within five minutes of me submitting my resume online, Gary Nauert at the time who, who ran uh, Austin, Texas for DPR, he sent out some massive email like, Man, we desperately need a healthcare project manager like now. <laughs> like, <laughs> does anybody in the country have someone that can transfer to Austin? Oh wow! And Jareen Jackson, who's head of HR, was like, oh, "I, Gary, I got this random <laughs> resume, and he, he has a five one two number." Which, because back long story, my first ever cell phone I got when I got my first real job out of college, and it was in Austin. So I've had an Austin number my whole career. So Gary calls me, I come in and interview, they huh. offer me a job, and I, I move there the next week and. 
And their sales pitch was, Dave, move, move, come with DPR and move to Austin, and you never have to move again. We want you to stay in Austin and build hospitals. I did one job there, and they moved me to Dallas. <laughs> so, uh, Dangle the carrot. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but, but that Dallas move for me was outstanding, and it was a really great opportunity. Um, if you recall, uh, remember IPD contracts? Yeah, that, yep. Those were all the buzz, like in 2008, 9, 10. Oh, yeah, Everyone, they were going to change everything. Oh, it was going to change the industry. And, and, you know, I was real intrigued by it, and, and we had this opportunity to uh, – we won a job with Children's Medical Center. We, we were partnered with HKS, and – it was going to be an IPD delivery, and you know, and you know, at the time is '09, I believe it was pretty slow in, in construction. Like there wasn't a lot going on in Austin, so I was like, "Man, I'll, yeah, I'll go to Dallas." And once again, I was like, "You're going to pay me to live in Uptown, and I'm a single guy in my late 20s, early 30s, and I can keep my place in Austin." So Monday through Thursday, I'm I'm hanging out in Dallas, and on the weekends, I'm awesome. Like, yeah, I'll do that all day. Right, you're just you're striking gold. Left oh, and yeah, right I'm here, very man. lucky. I'd rather be lucky than good. And I've yeah. definitely been lucky in my career. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, so moved up here, did that job, which was an outstanding project. You know, that led to more work with children. And while we were up here, we got some more work with another, you know, healthcare customer. Then got some data center work. And we were just kind of in the market. You know, we would we would know the subcontractors. We would meet a customer. Or if there was an opportunity from DPR, that an intern, like an HCA job, we would pursue it. And if we want it, we would bring up some more people from Austin. We were running all this work out of the 11th floor mechanical room at Children's Medical Center. Like, we didn't have an office up here. We were just a couple guys. Hey, we want a job. Sure. Hey, we'd bring a superintendent, a project manager up from Austin. We'd go manage it. We'd, we'd, you know, go by the job. We just kind of started getting some momentum. And it was probably May of 2012. DPR was like, Dave, I don't know what you're doing, how you're doing this, but stay here and keep doing that. I'm like, cool. So at that point, we got serious. We got an office. We started hiring locally. It was before we never hired locally because we, we were always just going to do this one job and go back to Austin. So we started hiring locally. We started growing the office, really growing the business. And, and I, that was a incredible, um, experience. I learned a ton going through that. Just, you know, in DPR had a great culture. And so I, I learned the importance of culture and, you know, they made you drink the Kool-Aid and, and I saw the value of that. I saw that decisions were getting made. It wasn't this hierarchical decision making. It wasn't like, hey, well, we got to get Dave's permission or let's, let's ask this executive. It's more like, man, you know what we're about. You know what type of culture we want. As long as you're living within that foundation, do whatever you can do to be successful. And so I would, I would see people in the office make decisions saying, Hey man, no, we're going to do this because that kind of aligns with our core values. And so I learned that at an early age. I saw it in practice. So that, that, that was an important phase of my career. So you're at CMC Plano and then you get this, Hey, we're going to build a Dallas office kind of thing. And you're leading the way. Knowing the culture, does that start with your hiring decisions of, all right, we're going to hire based on this, maybe not so much skill or it's on character or you have to be aligned with our vision? Like, how does that start after you find probably your office space and all that? But from a people perspective, what does uh, that journey look like? So that's a real interesting question. And it's completely different from the seat of a general contractor than it is from a seat of a subcontractor. Ooh, okay. So completely different. From a general contractor, if you need a healthcare project manager, I need a superintendent with you know commercial building experience. There's ninety thousand of them in the Dallas market. You ask, there's all these headhunters. They can get you fifteen resumes tomorrow. So essentially, the skill sets out there. I can get twenty five resumes of, of healthcare guys that know how to build know how to build our PMs that know how to build healthcare. I can get a ton of those resumes. So at that point, it ain't really. You can look at their what they've built. Oh, you've worked for these contractors. You built these jobs. Yeah, okay. You check the box. You know how to do this job. So then you're really looking on cultural fit, behavioral fit. Like, are you the type of person that would do good in our organization? Would you do good working? I, I always look at that. I want to work with you every day, all day. And, and you know, and if you can identify those people, we well, you know they have the skill, then, man, just trying to collect the type of people to fit your culture. And that was the magic on the, on the general contractor side because the skill set was there. Because well, I want to, I want to come to the the subcomponent okay. of that. Because I I got to I got to guess based on the way you answer that question what the the challenge at the sub level is. But I want to focus there right here on like hiring for culture. Mm-hmm. And what what were you doing to make sure that there was a fit? What questions were you asking? How were you interrogating those those resumes? Like what what's the process look like? Or is it just gut? Um, it's a little gut. I mean, uh, and it's funny you said that. I'm actually at this point in my career trying to change that gut to make it a little more like more of a plan because a lot of it it is an instinct. Like you, you first, you as the leader have to really know your culture. Like I really knew what DPR was trying to accomplish. I I aligned perfectly with it. And same thing with the companies I'm building now. I really know 
what we're trying to do and the type of people we want to do that. So then you're identifying those behavioral skill sets. You're like, you know, I mean, obviously we want to be very client centric. So man, I, I want a guy that I'm, I'm not looking for that engineering minded person that wants to shut the door and and not be very sociable, you know? So you start looking and then, and then, but knowing your culture, knowing what you're looking for. And then a lot of it is gut. It's instinctual. Like, man, I like this guy. This guy, he reminds me of me. He reminds me of someone I've worked with that's real successful in this, in this organization. Um, that's, that's a lot of it. You know, what's the hit rate on that? I mean, you bring in a hundred people. How many of them, how many times is your gut right? Man. Um, I'm not trying to put I, you on the no, spot. I'm just from, curious, like how, how successful that process is for an industry or for myself, for yourself. I've got a pretty good hit rate. I, I think that's my one skill. I'm not very good at construction. I'm not a very good builder. I'm not a very good project manager. I, I'm the worst estimator. Now I've never lose a job because I will be the cheapest. I get so caught up trying to win it. <laughs> so I, but my skill was, I mean, I'm really good at identifying great people and, and connecting those people and trying, I guess, lack of a better term, recruiting them to join our team. Yeah. That's really what I did at DPR. I, I could win. I was good at winning work and I was good at getting people, the right people on our team. So, I think my hit rate's a little higher than industry average. I've got a pretty good success rate. But. Yeah, because you're focusing on what matters most when you're at the top. You you transform from a builder of buildings to a build, builder of people. That's it. So you have to focus on that, and they're your route to success, so you invest all this time. So this week I got a testimony on you. I want to hear okay. the accuracy of this. You found somebody, and this might be in your, your latest venture, not the GC world. You found somebody that you thought was an all-star. And there wasn't a spot for this person at the time, but you thought so highly of them that, hey, we'll eventually find a spot for you. Just join our team. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I've done that a couple times. Okay. And most recently, I remember we, we added some guys in probably April of last year that made no sense. COVID, world shut down. Everyone's scared to death whether you're going to work or what's going on in work. But, man, there were a couple guys that, that we just knew that, man – they're great people, and, and and I've always kind of philosophy. They're a great person. Get them on your – and they're ready to come. Do not hesitate. Don't wait. Hey, in six months, I'll call you. We have an opportunity because that person, if they're great, they're going to be gone. Gone, yeah. So if absolutely. you believe they're great, you get them on your team. And I've done that several times in my career, and every time we've done that, it's strange. I actually said this yesterday. One of our guys asked me, hey, Dave, you know, how do you know if you if, if you can hire someone? It financially makes sense. It's like, I've never hired anybody when it made sense financially. It's never like, oh, we've got tons of money. Hire 10 more people. It's always like, man, we, you know, we're struggling with this. You know, we need this type of person. When you find that right person, every time I've done that, either A, they've been there, so another opportunity pops up, they can go tackle that, or B, they bring so much value to organization, whether through leadership or whatever it may be, that the organization runs better and becomes whatever it may be, more profitable, sells more work, operates better. It, so I, so I, that's why I'm a firm believer. If they're talented, you get them on your team. And there's more opportunity. There is talent to do it. It's unlimited how many, how many opportunities are out there. We were talking, it might have been with Sorelli. I can't remember, but he was talking about how all talent's on the bell curve, right? And so you have, there's a, I guess the, to the exact point you're making, there's a small number of people performing in that top 90%. And when one of those resumes comes across your desk, you better hire them. Absolutely. Because they're going to go somewhere else if you don't. Absolutely. When, it, when you have a chance to grab someone talented, you, you, you can't, you can't, well, when it's a combination of talent and the behavioral skills, they're the right person. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talented people. There's, that wouldn't be the right person in, in our organizations, you know? But when you find that mixture of that man, he's our type of person, you know, he's hungry, humble, willing to sacrifice for others, and he's, outstanding at this skill it's like dude those are once in a while those are unicorns game, those are game changing type people that will change this course of your organization so yeah you don't let those guys go yeah. that's a huge insight and rare everybody looks at it like i can't afford to hire this person but if you come at it from the other side of the fences i can't afford not to hire this person it's just an investment in that person it's an investment in your business that there's a high likelihood there's going to be a return on that investment yeah and it's a faith thing it really you have to believe that man, like when we hired these two guys back last year during COVID, and we literally were having contracts put on hold left and right, I just believe, man, these guys will make us better. And when this economy comes back, we're going to be in a better position. And it's and well, it's not like it took a couple of years. Within six months, we're you know I, I'm like this was the best hires we've made. You know, you know, awesome. you know what my least favorite part of this process is. I want to see if you can relate. When you're swinging for the fence with talent, you find somebody, you get them landed, they accept your offer, and now you're at a disadvantage for two weeks. Because then if they are an all-star, their current employer is doing everything within their power to keep them. 
And I've had two absolute all-stars back out on the two-week notice period because that company stepped up and realized what they were losing and just threw the Brinks truck at them. And they're like, I I can't make this move, Kevin. And I would hear what the counter was. I'd be like, you should probably stay, man. (laughs) You can't pass up on that. I I think you probably offered them too early. The reason I say that is um, a lot of times those type of hires, it's not about money. It's about you need to build that relationship with them. And it's about them hooking up with somebody. They get, if there's that level of talent, they're coming to you because they think their life's going to be better with, with you than it is with their current employer. They're, they'd rather join you as a leader than the leader they're currently with. So, and I've had that happen where I, I you know, thought we connected, threw an offer out, they countered, they end up staying. And every time I've done that, you know what, man, we off, we didn't build a strong enough relationship. We, you should get to the point that, man, they're coming because they want to be part of what you're doing and what your organization is trying to create. And, and you could throw, Three brink trucks at them. That's not why they're staying or going, and um and so that that that's a lesson I've learned. That man, it's it's also kind of that dating period, I guess. So as you're recruiting somebody, uh, especially these bigger time talents, you know, you better make sure. And honestly, that's something I would talk to them about. Hey, they're going to counter. You know that's coming. Yeah. So let's get on the table and and talk through it and make sure, like I said, make sure they're joining you for your cause, your why, for you know, not because you're offering twenty percent more. Because if that's why, they're going to go for 20% more to someone else. That's yeah. and honestly that's the type of person um that that's that doesn't really fit in our organization either cuz we're you know man we're here to try to do something special with all these great people. We want the person that's attracted to that. You know, the person wants more money, he'll be there for a time period, but there's always more money. There's always someone going to throw more at you. Dude. Talk about an expert in the field, man. Come on. Rich, it's all so good, man. It's all so <laughs> that's good. Why I'm okay. so excited for this. Yeah. Just be a student I, for an hour. I'm a student of, of that, also a student of messing up the podcast a bunch. And so I actually took down that timestamp because I was like, that's good. We're going back to 2130 or whatever oh, cool. that time mark was. Um, okay. So we got to, that's all super. One thing to say, and then I'll pivot us over to your hiring experiences in the sub world. Actually, we might not tell a story getting to the sub world first, yeah. but, um, the, the thought I was having was you can tell those people who want just 20% more. Yep. Cause you go look like on their LinkedIn or whatever and you see every 18, 22 months or whatever, just hop and hop and hop. And yep. we, we had a resume come across our desk the other day that was similar. It's different in the legal field, but it's similar in the sense you see like they've been at three or four firms and you're just like, and that, I don't, I don't want that person here because I know what's going to happen. They'll be here for a couple of years. We'll pour our heart and soul into them. Yeah. And then somebody will say, Hey, I'll pay you X number of dollars more and peace. Um, so let's flip, we're talking about, um, hiring the, the distinction between hiring when you're at the GC and hiring, hiring when you're at a sub, mm-hmm. uh, when you're with a sub. And so let's, let's fill that void by talking about how you went from a GC to now a sub. Let's tell that story and then we'll talk about the, the differences in hiring. Yeah. So, um, so at DPR, um, like I said, got a chance to start an office. I was one of the youngest stockholders in the history of DPR. Like I, it was a golden handcuffs, great situation for me, but man, you know, I was going through a lot of, you know, I was going through some leadership development there. I was, I was just doing a lot of like searching of what I wanted in life. And, and it kind of, and I honestly kind of worked backwards. It's like, all right, when I'm 70, you know, 75, 70 years old, whatever, and I look back on my career and what I've done, I was like, I didn't really want to be a corporate guy. I didn't want to be a career corporate guy. I, I didn't excite me, but I really was excited about the opportunity to, I always said, I want to be a guy that knows how to build, start, grow, acquire all different sorts of businesses. That's, I, I want to be known as an entrepreneur. I was intrigued by that. I was, Throughout my, you know, that's why I took the job of being K over DPR the first time because it was entrepreneurial, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I was like, well, Dave, that's what you want to do. At some point in your life, you have to do that. <laughs> you can't talk <laughs> about it for 20 years and say, and so I was like, so then I, and at the same time, kind of, you know, the serendipitous way life works, I met a couple mentors. The first one was, yeah, y'all might know Jeff Thomas. I know Jeff. Glasgow yeah. Drywall. We met on that children's medical job. Glasgow did the drywall on it. Me and Jeff became friends and we started talking more about life and about, you know, I was, he knew I had this entrepreneurial, you know, Interest. And he was, you know, he, he was talking to me a lot about it and, and, and how to, you know, how to build the perfect life and what you want your life to look like. And so I was going through that journey. And then, and he introduced me with my other partner, a guy named Sam Mullis, you know, Mullis Newby Hirsch. You might yep. be familiar with him. Sam. Yeah, Sam's another outstanding guy. Me and Sam really hit it off. And, and so, uh, so man, I kind of, so through these conversations, relationships, and, and this was a couple year journey. This wasn't like it happened over a couple weeks. This is right. a couple year journey of, of meeting and talking and thinking and, you know, grinding over, man, what, what do I want my life to look like? What do I want to do? And so, you know, I, I said, man, I really want to go grow a business from scratch. I want to learn how to do a business from scratch. And 
first and foremost, I was like, all right, makes sense. Let's go be a general contractor. And, and I didn't want to do that because the only way to really for me to do that was to take DPR people and DPR customers. And I, I didn't want to leave there an adversarial way. They were outstanding to me. I had a, I have zero negative things to say about it. They treated me great. So I was like, well, I don't want to leave there adversarially. So then I started looking at the subcontractor community. And, you know, um, Jeff being a subcontractor, he, you know, he had a lot of insight. Sam being an insurance bonding guy, he had a lot of insight. So we started looking around at the businesses we thought there was opportunity in it. And, uh, one of the first few businesses we looked at was actually a door business. Looked at two different door businesses to potentially acquire. Uh, they didn't work out for one reason or another. And then we looked at maybe doing some concrete and, you know, honestly didn't, it just for whatever reason, wasn't the right model for us. And, the whole times is going on. Um, we're, I'm still having my day job. I'm still at DPR. We're still doing work. And, right. And, you know, and I just kind of, you know, had this idea for demolition. And I was like, man, you know, what I did was really healthcare, data center, real kind of, kind of higher end demo. It's not, we're not, you know, it's not inside an office building. It's, you're inside an OR next to active facility taking out material. So, and there wasn't a lot of guys at the time that did that work. You know, there, you know, there, there's, you know, a couple guys now did it, did a really good job at it. Not, not knocking them at all, but, but I was just like, man, I feel like there's a need for this because a lot of times we bid this work, we get one bid, you know. And so I was just like, man, I really feel like there's a niche for demolition to go be this, um, go be this kind of high end demolition that we really work in sensitive environments or sensitively, you know, complex. Like we always say we want to do really complex environments or really complex jobs because if it has some level of complexity to it, then man, we have a better shot at winning it because we can show value. And, and so. So we went after that market, and, and, and I was right. There was a lot of need for it. There's a lot of that in the market. You know, we, we had a real big uh, success rate of people wanting to use us, and so uh, kind of grew like crazy from there. Okay, so let's flip back then to the hiring, right? Because mm-hmm. you go ground up, right? This is a new company you didn't acquire. You just ground up, ground up this thing, and so you have to figure out how to hire folks. Yep. So let's kind of go back to that okay. delta or distinction between hiring for GCs and hiring for subs and your experiences through that. So one big distinction, I always joke around, Man, when you're hiring for DPR or hiring for a major general contractor, that's like selling Coca-Cola, guys. Everyone wants to work there. It's easy, mm-hmm. you know? So you already have that advantage. When you're a brand-new startup demolition company, man, <laughs> it's like selling grape No, No one's – they're like, what? I want to do – I want to go work right. with do what? So, man, you're really selling yourself. Yeah. So that's, that's one big difference is that – especially when you're new. When you're, when you're an established subcontractor, that might be a little different. But when you're new, like – Dave, you've never even done demo. Why are we going to come work with you? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> come on, we'll figure it out. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Let's um, do it. But uh, so that's one big challenge. But the other big one, like I mentioned on the GC side, hey, I need a healthcare PM. Well, I recruit her and get me 20 resumes. And then there's a bunch of guys in DFW do that. I need a demolition project manager. There ain't a lot of PMs out there to do that specifically. There's not a lot of, you know, you're, you're just naturally, there's not that many specific trades that do that work. So there's a less talent pool. Okay. Yeah. So you're at a disadvantage, and 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 a lot of companies like you know the guy that really really makes that run is usually the owner and operator. So you're not getting him away from it. So so you have a so there's not as much of a there's not as big of a pool of selection versus I had 20 healthcare project managers. I have what maybe three or four good PMs in Dallas, and and those guys have been at a company 30 years, whatever. Probably not pulling them away from them. So really, in that world, you have to hire 100 percent behavioral. Hire the right person and train them on the business. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we did, we built a process. We built all our tools from scratch. That's what the first couple of years are about. And so we had a way and we realized we could train other people to do it. So man, go give me a really good person, a really, that fits our culture. It fits us behaviorally. That's the type of person we want. And then we'll teach them how to do demo. We'll teach them how to do doors. I, I will teach them how to do glass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, teach like them I, how to be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> hey, lawman. Hey, lawman. Let me show you a book to read. Um, I love whenever we hear, like, because we've heard, I think we're probably 20, probably at this point, like 30 episodes in, plus or minus. And I love it when you can see a thread that goes through other people talking about Heck stuff. Yeah, you man. know. And so when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about, I, I may have already mentioned it once, I'm thinking about our interview with Sorelli. And he's talking about like hire for character, yeah. Train for the job, yep. And that's I man, that's what you're saying. And, and if you're hiring good, young, smart people who are you know just good people, then then you can. What we do is not that hard. We want to say it is, but it's construction. You know, really smart monkeys can do this. They got to be smart monkeys, but really smart. So, but I think we tend to look at the technical side first. You're especially 
I know, Kevin, you've, you've had to have done this. You've won some job or whatever, and you're, you're fierce. God, we don't have the right. We can't do that. You want to go hire this guy from this company who's technically very strong right. but doesn't fit your culture at all. I've made this mistake a bunch. And, man, that's the worst mistake you can make. It's the technical skills you can learn if you have the right person. It's the easy button in our it's industry easy button. to that's just exactly. say, you know what, 10 years experience. We've had several people say, well, what if that 10 years is awful? Yeah. Or what if it's the same one year 10 times over? Go find character. And it's secret sauce that's not so secret, man. It's just a lot of people won't do it. They won't put in the effort for it. They don't see the benefit because they haven't seen it play out. Yeah. I see it with a ton of construction companies where – they don't invest into the people. They just call that glazing recruiter and say, hey, I need a 20-year guy. Yeah. You go hire him. You figure out six months later that they're not going to work out. Yep. And I could relate to that hustle uh, getting the startup going and trying to compete against the big GCs and even the big subcontractors. And I went to a trade show, a college trade show. I think it was like A&M, one of the big boys. Yeah. I went in and had her table set up and I had kids looking at her table like, glazing, glazing. What, what's glazing? I'm like, I'm not doing this again. Yeah, yeah. That is not going to be my path to victory. I got to go entrench myself in, in smaller schools and go talk to those people, get my face out there, and then pitch the vision to them of what they can be. And, and we're totally at a disadvantage when you're talking to a construction major, GC versus sub because it's part of the curriculum like your path to victory when you graduate is to go work for a gc and so our pitch is like that's a great secure job you know like it's good level if you come work here your incline can be like this if you are the right type of person but the counter is there's nowhere to hide yeah so you got to perform well that's all i want to go back to that that's i think the flaw with our system right now with with the collegiate system i mean Texas a&m and auburn all these great programs they get their funding from the large general contractors. They're literally there to make a factory line of people to come out of college every year and go work for these big GCs. And and I know as a as one of those students at Auburn, I turned my nose up to the sub community. Like, oh, no, I'm not going to take it. I remember when subs would come. I had this because I was kind of I was kind of led to believe that. Hey, you, you should go work for you should go work for Holder. You should go work for Brassville and Gorey or you know. But it never even talked about a sub community. And there is so much more opportunity in the sub community for young people to come into. And, and that, I've made that kind of a personal passion of getting young talent into the industry. And, and I don't, and I think people are misled at, at the A&Ms, at the Auburns that no, no, you can go work for a big GC. Why? And be one of 5,000 employees that just kind of, or you can go to a smaller company, like a, like a subcontractor and be an influential employee, you mm. know, and you could, you could actually be a, a decision maker and actually steer the direction of that organization, which, if they you would have pitched me that coming out of college, I would have jumped on that in a heartbeat. But I didn't know that was even an option. Right. You know? So what's the man? A couple of things I want to go go through there. What's the change agent then? Like, is it is it educational? Is it trying to cite? Like, how do you flip that paradigm so that those kids coming out realize that opportunity? Or is it just you're gonna have to? I think it's got to be awareness. You have to talk to the like I said. If Dave Burrows today walked in an Auburn classroom and gave that speech. I would have signed up in a heartbeat because that's what I was looking for, but that wasn't an option. That mm-hmm. was, I was like, well, I guess I get a job with one of these big general contractors. That's what you do here, you know, and that's kind of what they patch on the back for. Oh, man, he got, we got all our students got offers with top ENR 400 companies, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I, I remember a guy, I felt bad for the guys. I mean, and he's, he's going to get a job. He couldn't get a big GC job. He's going to work for a site work company in, in Mobile, Alabama. Man. Oh. The guy now owns a company and lives on the beach. It's like, oh, Heck, yeah. well, I didn't, that opportunity didn't even, cause, cause it's not really a system of entrepreneurialism. It's not a system of yeah. that, man, you could be the, uh, another fish in a big sea or go be the big fish in a small pond, you know, and, and ha- actually make an impact and really, and so, like I said, that's what I was looking for. I was wanting to build businesses and grow them and, and make impacts and really impact people. And I think I have a better platform to do that. On a, I think I affect more people working for small contractors than I do working for large ones. We we have a mutual friend that to summarize that that says there are riches in the niches. Yes, I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Who says that? Keon. Ah. Oh, I love Keon. Yeah, yeah. That's I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Riches in the niches. Yeah. It, what's cool about uh, to tie all this in? You have the type of company at the demo company where. One year in, it feels like you've been here forever, like for in in all the good ways. Mm-hmm. Super electric. Uh, you're an electrifying person, and that that pours down into your culture because that's what you're passionate about. How how does that take off to a point where you are 
a well-known, the known demolition company after five short years? Uh, I mean, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it, sure. it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I mean, people, <laughs> I definitely put off this image of someone that's just life. is just as easy and man, it, you know, everything just works out for them. But what people don't remember seeing, we first started, I remember being scared to hire guys and because we were, I didn't know if we'd have enough work next week to hire them. So we kept our crew small. And I remember one day at two in the afternoon, I'm in a dumpster squishing duck down to make the duck flatter so I could get more duck in there because I didn't have enough dumpsters to haul out all the duck works. We, I made a mistake on the estimate. And so I remember thinking then, I was like, man, I was an executive. I was an owner at DPR like a month ago. Now I'm in a dumpster <laughs> squishing. I was like, you know, no one sees that. No one, yeah. no one sees that. Hey, when we first started, my superintendent called me and said, hey, Dave, we're doing this job at night. Where do we take the dumpsters? I'm like, I'm like oh, I'm, I don't know. That's a great question. And so the next night I was in my truck and I saw some other demolition company. I followed them. Where are they taking dumpsters? You know, like, like that's the that's the growing pains early on, which it's also the stuff you love mm. years later. I look back like that was so much fun figuring it out and building that business and yeah, so people don't see that. So it takes a lot of hard work. It takes it does take getting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most important thing we've done is really build a great team. That's really at the end of the day, it's the team that really is in front of your customer, and and so building the culture that attracts the right people that that knows how to treat your customer and, and treat your employees too. I mean, our field employees are our most important asset. I mean, that is that is it. That is where the rubber meets the road. Um, I mean, and so building a culture that, that they the field employees are treated with respect. I mean, when our guys know, when our foremen come into the office, you get out of your office, you go say hello to them. You make them, you know, because those guys are killing it for us. And they're the reason we're winning that next job because they do such a great job executing. And that's what I love. There's there's so many things that are absolutely broken in our industry, and you can either let that beat you down or see them as opportunities. At Dynamic, we create a people-first culture, right? And and that's just not with your clients. That's, that's your people. Yep. And it's not just the office walls. So we have a shop for manufacturing. And the only thing that separates us is a code mandated wall between the office and the shop. And it took well over a year to break that where they had, they thought they had to ask permission to come into our side of the office. And it's like, dude, this is your place. We got cable in the conference room. That is your coffee maker in there. And it just shows the brokenness of our industry. But what we talk in the office is without our shop and field, we are nothing. nothing. So we need to treat them like they're everything. Man, I know exactly. We we built a new office over off Shorecrest where we're at now. Um, and, you know, we bought an old building, completely gutted it, made it really nice on the inside. It's a really sharp office. And it was almost so nice, like the field guys wouldn't come in there. Yeah. I remember we first moved in, none of them would come inside. They'd go to the shop and they would hang out in the parking lot, but they wouldn't come inside. And and that, I remember walking, coming in from lunch one day, and there's like four or five guys sitting on their tailgates eating lunch. I was like, "Well, we have a kitchen and a table. And so I, I, we, we made a, we started making people come inside, making them come and eat lunch and eating lunch with them. So I know, no, it's okay. Cause, you know, they were almost being respectful. Hey, you know, that's, that's for the office. We're going to, I'm, I'm going to stay out here. And man, we broke that barrier down. And I, what I love now is any day you come in our office, it's just buzzed and filled with people. And we're grilling out, they're grilling out fajitas and there's a whole crew in there, you know, hanging out and talking and they feel comfortable to be in our office. And that is that same thing. And we never said that it was an imaginary wall. They they thought, Hey, I'm going to be respectful. I'll stay outside. That's for the, that's for the accountant girls. That's for, that's for the PMs. And they no, no, this is for everyone. And so that's important though, that, but as a leader of your organization, you have to be the one that breaks that down. You got to be the one that, if I would have allowed it to happen, then everyone would have allowed it to happen. And you're just like every other company, kind mm-hmm. of, kind of yep. shtick there. Yep. Well, and that's slightly a, a skew from what exactly what you're talking about. But that that paradigm exists in all companies. Yeah. Right. Like if you're in IT, and the programmers are over here, and the whatevers are over here, and it, at the at the at the firm, it's, I mean, there's a little bit like that, right? Like all the lawyers have walls, uh, offices on the outside, and all the staff have offices on the inside, and just like. I think the point to take away here is that's not a construction related issue. That's a, that's, that's a, every a, yeah. industry. That's a, that's a leader issue. That's a leadership, a culture building issue is to, you have, and, and I think you said it right before I started talking, you got to, you have to, as a leader, aggressively tear that down. You have to. You Otherwise have to. it'll just, it'll just exist. Yep. Man, I like that. That's good. Yeah. You're totally right about the hustle, but, and you alluded to it earlier about vision and cause. If, if your vision and cause is big enough you have to expect adversity and you could power through it because you know what you're aiming towards. Mm-hmm. And that rests on your shoulders initially. But when you can bring the vision to life, 
then it's a group deal where you see everybody starting to sprout. And when you, you see those small moments where people are looking out for each other rather than themselves and you see these small wins, I know it, it takes a while, even, even within the office, I, I don't know how y'all are structured, but like estimating the project management, mm-hmm. I've, historically, no, yeah. you know, they like to fight shop and field, yeah. love to fight. But if they could be bought in that we're all trying to achieve the same thing here. So work together because nobody's judging you how you're performing. If the overall company is not performing well. Yeah. I, I always point that out. I was like, guys, no one cares. If we sell a bunch of work. We can't do it right. You know, <laughs> you know, and, and vice versa. No one cares. You're the best demo guy in the world. If we can't sell anything because you guys can't get along, you know, so it takes a team. You have to, you got to preach that team environment. Back to your point about vision. It's only a vision. It can only succeed if everyone sees it. You right. Know? It, it can't happen if, if, only you have a vision, but the rest of your organization doesn't understand it. You know, yeah, it, that's either a hiring thing, or you know, you're just not walking the words on the on the wall. I I think it's you got to hire right. Obviously, uh, you have to live it. And man, I think there's some part of like branding it. You know, you just have to say it enough and enough and enough, almost to the point that you're. If I always say this as a leader, if they're not making fun of you for how much you bring up your core values, you're probably not doing it enough. It's almost you almost have to be that extreme. Yeah. To really get to resonate with everyday, you know, with all your employees. I, I've heard that somewhere before. I don't think it's actually on this podcast, but I've heard that before. Yeah. If they don't make fun of you for saying it, you're not saying it. You're not saying enough. You, yeah. you have to go that, you got to make it part of your culture, make it part of the dialogue. And, and like I said, I witnessed that at DPR that they did a great job of doing that. And I, I remember hearing, you know, I wouldn't even end the conversation hearing two employees have a conversation and make a decision because it'll, this decision aligned with our core values. Another one didn't. I was like, wow. That's pretty powerful. That's when a culture is working. Right. You know? Put you on blast. Your core values. I looked at them on the website. Do you want to go through through them a little bit and sure. talk about, you know, what the DNA of the Demino company is and probably the door company as well? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I went through a struggle too when I started the door company. Do I just have the same core values? And and I decided not to because I'm the same person, but you know, I have other leaders on that team. And so – but it was interesting. They both landed on two of the exact same core values. Really? So, yeah. So two are the same and the other two or three are, are, are different for each organization. But one of them was have fun. That, you know, for me, <laughs> that's the most important. I want to have as much fun as I possibly can in this life. You only get one loop. And unfortunately, it's a, a fact you're going to spend more time at work than you do your friends and family. Mm-hmm. And so to have a, a work environment that's not enjoyable to be in and not fun, I was like, what a miserable existence. And I think a lot of people live in that existence. I was like, man, I, so I want to create a fun culture. I want fun people and fun. It is, you know, having beers at work. It is, you know, let's, let's take the half day off and go ride go-karts. But it's also <laughs> when it, everyone's, you know, humming and kicking ass and estimating's win a bunch of work and in operations is executing on a high level and they're driving and there's such good team camaraderie. That's fun. I love that. Um, so yeah, having fun and, you know, that's, that's what we say, right, man, if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. Right. So then, uh, the other core, like our other core value was kind of the same on both was, um, was, um, great people. And so we're like, man, we can't do this without great people. And, and how you define great people is hungry, humble, and willing to sacrifice for others. So that's what we look for. And so really what that says is we want someone that's hungry, that wants to get better. And if, if you're just satisfied with working eight to five and getting a check, you're, you're probably not in the right culture. You know, we want someone that that has humility. Ego doesn't do well in our culture. So you have to be humble, have humility. And then sacrifice for others, that just means you're a giver. You're you're not a taker. You want to help other people. And and that's that's the core of what type of person we look for. Give us an example of where that that core value has shown up. You see people doing it at the office. You're like, ah, that dude right there nailed it. Uh man, it, it, every day, I mean one that just kind of recently I have it's fresh in my mind is the, <laughs> so we have another core radio called Go Electric. It was really about just, you know, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, always think differently and try to, you know, transform ourselves and our industry. And, and one of our guys, or two of our guys came up with this idea of this, like, I don't want to give it away because they're working real hard on some, on some, uh, what do you call it? Uh, when you create something, you got to get some type of patent on it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're working D- Depends on, on what it is. Trademark but, or patent. But, yeah. but yeah, but they created essentially this Go Electric group. And, and, the, and the, which is a mixture of some office and field guys. And it's about how do we, what can we do to make the company better, whether it's through ideas, processes, systems, you know, some type of equipment. And these guys have created a, a new type of equipment that's not in the demo industry right now that they're, that they're getting built and, and, uh, patented, which I, I was like, well, that's pretty powerful. 
I didn't. First of all, I would have never have thought of it. So right. it goes to the point that man, you you got to have smart, great people around you. And then two, that this this team, I didn't even ask them to make the Go Electric Group. They did it on their own. They're man. Let's let, how do we make this company better? And they started meeting regularly. Came up with ideas, and they started vetting these ideas out. And they've got something that's really about to pop. So man, yeah. And that's just derivative of culture. Like they're yeah, just absolutely. hanging out. They're talking. They're looking out for one another. They start talking about how they can make this place that they hang out so much better. And then, boom, ideas come out of that. Put it this way. The first time I hear, heard about this idea, they've been working on it for months, was when it's time to go to India to see the prototype. I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, which I love that that culture exists. These guys felt like they could come together and come up with this idea and, and get all the way to building a prototype. For I, I, I love that because I don't want a company dependent on 100% me. I, don't, I want smart people that know what to do, that can make decisions, that can propel the company way further than any vision or idea I could have ever done it. I'm, like I said earlier, I'm extremely limited. My only talent is hanging out with really talented people. Like I'm, I'm good at that. I can hang out with really good people. You're, you're yeah. the, the you're the George Bush of demo. That's it, brother. That's <laughs> it. There's nothing wrong with that. So yeah. Stewart's kind of a history buff. So that that core value of Go Electric. It's Bob Dylan. Was was he the first one to go with the electric guitar that, or something? Well, no. Uh, I don't know if he was the first, but when he went electric, it was a huge. He was like the uh, the face of the folk scene in the '60s. He was it. And when he went electric, um, it like it upset a ton of people. Like, I remember, have you ever seen that Martin Scorsese film, No Direction Home, about Bob Dylan? There's uh-huh. a scene where he he's playing acoustic guitar and he puts on the electric, and they, the crowd starts calling him Judas. You know, they're like they hate it. They're booing oh, him wow. off the stage. And man, I it was I was watching that movie when I was leaving DPR, going through this transition. And what I got out of that was, man, um, the easy path for Bob Dylan was to stay acoustic and keep making folk songs and and keep doing this. For and he could have printed money and been that for whatever, however long. But you know what? He wouldn't have been Bob Dylan. He just wouldn't have been a guy from the folk scene. The fact that he pushed himself and he's like, man, where I want to go in life, I've got it. I'm going to transform myself. I'm going to become get electric guitars. I'm going to change the type of music I'm doing. And he became one of the most prolific artists of all time. So I felt I really connected with that phase of my life. I was like, dude, I have a pretty sweet gig right now. <laughs> like, but man, for what I want to become, I've got to go this other direction. And it wasn't very popular at the time. A lot of people could not comprehend it. Like, you're going to leave DPR and run an office and, you know, to go be a trash man. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know it doesn't make sense. But like, right. But, but I felt I resonated. I felt like, man, people weren't getting it, but I, I knew like for me, I, so that's why that became a core value of our company. It's a real personal one that relates to me. I love, I love that I, because it doesn't, I mean, we would have got there, but like this idea of go electric doesn't resonate until you tell that story. Yeah. And then you tell that story. I'm like, that's boss, <laughs> yeah. which boils down to the core value of innovation. And if I wouldn't have clicked the button on your website to read further on well, my curiosity struck. What, what does Go Electric mean? Are they trying to like electrify a uh, demo demolition? No, innovation core value. That's just super cool, man. Yeah, so we try to do tag it either with a picture of Bob Dylan or with a guitar. Yeah, it's a guitar. You, you kind of see that you know where the idea came from. So love it. All right, so we were talking culture and stuff. Uh, let's let's talk about what like how how you kind of went about developing the culture, right? So it comes. I could think of a couple places it comes from. It could come from like mentors you had, experiences you had, or maybe books that you read or commend to your folks. Uh, let's talk about it in that space. Like, how did you go about developing the culture you're putting in here? Yeah, I think a lot of it was was from mentors and experiential stuff you've experienced yourself or, or learned from others. Uh, and you mentioned books, like some of the books that. Uh, there's two books I love, and I try to I recommend for most of our guys to read them. One's called The Go Giver. I don't mm-hmm. know if y'all heard of it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I forget who the author is. Bob Bird. It's a great book. Yeah. Love it. and just the the philosophy of that, and that is my that I live my life that same way, just helping others and, and not keeping score, and it's going to come back, you know. And then the other one, honestly, I think for building businesses, for uh, what do you call it, just running a business. Oh, good to great, <laughs> good to great. Yeah, yeah. By Jim Collins, just a great great book. Uh, I, I think the principles in there are just uh, it. It really does tell you everything you know how to run and start a business. Have you read that? I know you've read The Go Giver. Have you read Good to Great? Yeah, I've not read that one. Good I think that's what Daniel said. Was he the one that said everything? Jim Collins, like you name it, read it. <laughs> Can't remember. There's that. actually yes, yeah, I agree with that. All Jim Collins stuff. Now it goes in different. Like, I think one's like Dare to Be Great. He has different. So the, the Good to Great, it just really it's a study of you know what's why do some companies go from good to great and some go from good to bad or some just stay the same. And what, what are those? And they really, they kind of, and I like the kind of scientifically, he studied it. They, a group of people studied it for years and found these, they found light companies and found out, Hey, here's the things they did. And there were some, 
uh, really some coincidences. They they all had these same kind of stories, which it was. I thought it was a great book. That's awesome. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about family. Okay. Right? I feel like all the family folks need a shout out. So tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. So my, I got a beautiful wife, Danielle. Uh, we've been married three years as of last Wednesday. It's not fair because we dated like five or six years. So I feel like I should get nine or ten or whatever we're at. You get, uh, it's like for term, uh, what do they call it? Time served. You yeah. get like eight years of time served. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I, 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 like, I celebrate a three-year anniversary. It doesn't sound good. It's like, this is like almost ten years, Danielle. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a daughter, Chloe. She's awesome. Uh, she's definitely um, um, she's a daddy's girl. I mean, her like best friend. She's my little buddy. That's awesome. Uh, How old is she? Uh, 14. Just turned 14. The uh, what's she up to these days? I got a um, Williams thirteen, going to be fourteen. So what's what's Chloe up to? Man, so this was like I've been really lucky. Chloe's a great kid, and and unlike me at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, she's still a kid. Like, uh, but when she turned fourteen, like overnight, she became like a woman. Like <laughs> she's in the shopping, she's in the clothes, she's in the makeup. It's like you were into My Little Pony like six months ago. What happened? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and she's, she's becoming a team. She's, I'm very blessed, man. She's, she's a great kid. We're doing, we're going through this phase right now with William. He's 13. We're, we're trying to convince him that he's an adult. I'm oh, like, really? yeah, you dude, at thir- if this was the 1800s, you would be working the field every day. So go pick your shoes up. <laughs> I'm the same way with Chloe. Like, Chloe, you are four years away from living on your own and paying taxes. Right. Like you're, you're, an, you're an adult. It's time you tie your shoes. Like it's, <laughs> it's time you make your own breakfast. Like, cause, but also part of that, because, you know, uh, my wife had Chloe at, at a young age. And so Chloe was like the, the only kid with her and her grandparents. And so she spent her whole life, everyone catering to her. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're thirsty? Let me go get you a juice box. Oh, you're hungry? Let me make you a sandwich. Like, so she just kind of this, it's not her fault. It's like the whole, it's like, the whole family has nurtured her so much. She just feels like, oh, if I want something to eat, someone will make it for me. You know? <laughs> so that's why I keep telling Danielle, our job is to get her out of the nest. Yeah. You know, she's, you know, it's not to be her friend anymore. We gotta, we gotta make her grow up. So. Some, sometimes I'll tell the kids that I did not sign up for the job of being your friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. So go pick your shoes up. <laughs> I, I have a daughter. She's three and a half and I still don't know which route she's going because she's into the dance. She's, she does yoga upstairs now, which is hilarious. But also recently she said, Hey, I want the Easter bunny to bring me a fishing pole. And I'm like, you better believe he's bringing yeah. you a fishing pole. <laughs> I talked to him. I, I heard, I heard you you're in. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it could still go both routes. It might be, uh, into my activities. It might be my wife's. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah. We don't know yet. That's yeah, fun. It's yeah. fun to watch him grow up. All right. So we normally end with kind of what we call the one big thing or one big takeaway. So, uh, we, we kind of prepped you for it a little bit. So I won't give too much explanation, but as we wrap up, what's the, the one thing you'd like to make sure listeners hear from you based on, you know, your experiences, uh, your leadership style, your culture at the office, whatever, what's the one big thing, one big takeaway? Yeah, man, for me, the one big takeaway, it's a philosophy I kind of live by and I really try to preach to our people. And, I, you know, I just people I really try to look to hook up with is I kind of boil everyone in life down. There's two, two categories. Every single person falls in one of these two categories. They're either a giver or a taker. They're either a selfish or selfless or selfish, you know, so – if you view the world that way, then man, my job is to do, do my best to surround myself with givers, people that, that want to help and want to give, and then do everything in my power to make those people successful. Do everything I can to find, give them something meaningful in their lives. Cause if you do that, it's always going to come back to you. You know, so if you, if you're about, and so that's why the idea is surround yourself with givers, remove the takers. Cause if those people exist, get them out of your life and man, and do everything you can to make those people successful. Man, that, that story, that's a, that's a really good way to pinpoint the end of that. Cause that is what we've heard about culture. That's what we've heard from you about your journey to get to where you are. And it's, it's the formula for success, having success at the demo company and at the mm-hmm. door company. So that's a nice pinpoint to the end of that. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Dave, for Man, joining thank, us. This was awesome. Thank you guys. I had so much fun. Appreciate it. Yeah.